Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Nancy Marie Mythlow. Dr. Nancy Marie Mythlow is a Chiricahua Apache and is a professor of gender studies and core faculty with the American Indian Studies Interdepartmental Program at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Mythlow's curatorial work has resulted in nine exhibitions at the Venice Benali. A lifelong educator, Dr. Mythlow has taught at the University of New Mexico, the Institute of American Indian Arts, the Santa Fe Community College, Smith College, California Institute of Arts, Occidental College, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her 2020 book, Knowing Native Arts, was published by the University of Nebraska Press. Dr. Mythlow's research addresses the pressing need for accurate and sensitive information for and about American Indian communities, using institutional critique, curatorial strategies, and the arts analysis. She is concerned with the unequal application of resources in the arts and cultural fields, and the outmoded theoretical frames of analysis that tend to describe but fail to analyze the wealth of knowledge inherent in Native arts production and circulation. So, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Nancy Marie Mythlow. Nancy Marie Mythlow, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's really great to have you here. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your backgrounds, uh, what you do, and where you're from. Okay, sure. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start. My uncle has just uh, given me an update on how to say hello in our language. Nita Gote. Um, I'm Nancy Marie Mythlow. I am a, a mother. I am a grandmother. I am a sister, and um, I hope that I am a good relative to folks in Oklahoma and New Mexico, and also just a teacher. You know, primarily I'm an educator, so my my job. I was going to say my day job, but it's actually it's it's all around all day job. My all day job <laughs> is as a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, and my home is in the Gender Studies Department, and I am a proud core faculty member for the American Indian Studies Interdepartmental Program here in Los Angeles. So I'm speaking to you from the lands of the original caretakers, the Tonga and the Gabrielino peoples. So let's... um. I want to ask you about your your bigger influ- or your biggest influences. Um, I know, and I might throw a little bit of a curveball at you here, uh, but as we move through our life, I find that um, our influences uh, when we're younger, our influences may change as we move uh, through our uh, lives and through our careers. And so, I was wondering if you talk about your influences. Wow, you know, thank you for bringing that up because in listening to your wonderful conversations that you've had with folks here, and let me just say what a beautiful space that you've created for all of us. Um, I I love talking with people. I, I really believe in the power of like those deep conversations near the kitchen sink, you know, or 
outside after a funeral or, you know, I, I just think our, our, our world is pieced together with our conversations. So I, I highly value your craft and what you're doing. So as I've been listening to these, though, I'm, I, I've, I've been struck, and I don't know if it's my age, so I'll be totally transparent. I'm turning 61 this month. I am um, officially a young elder, and I'm starting to think a lot about generations and like where I fit with generations and how my roles develop over time, you know, and and. I've noticed that I don't have those kind of like really direct lines of, oh, so-and-so saw my talent at an early age <laughs> and they decided to mentor me. You know, I, I feel like, and it could just be my own stubbornness, right? My own ornery character. But I, I feel like I've been just kind of in some real rough and tumble kind of situations over time. And, and I, I'm, I'm not pitying myself. And I hope I'm not bragging when I say that. But, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned as we were about to go live that I'm, I'm working on a book, and I'm, I'm talking about, I'll just read one line. I can speak with death and authority as a member of the generation of achievers that followed the generation of strivers that followed the generation of survivors. And what I'm sensing is that the door that I came out on, and it's kind of a you know, uh, widespread experience over space and time, but that, that, that door that I came out on was filled with a lot of expectations. So I said achievers, you know, really that, um, you know, we, we, we needed to get a lot of stuff done. And I've spent a long time getting a lot of stuff done. And I'm starting to question if that's a colonial move. Right? <laughs> you know, like, I'm starting to question, oh, okay, so we went in and we were supposed to, you know, fix um, poisoned collections that were in museums all throughout the country. And, you know, what that resulted in is a generation of primarily young women my age being totally unprepared spiritually or even in terms of our physical safety to go into these ancient storage houses that have been contaminated, the objects with arsenic and strychnine. We're actually handling that stuff, right? And we're childbearing years, right? And then we're going outside with our chemical hands and eating our peanut butter sandwiches on the stoop because, you know, we have no money in those internships and we're going back in and working again. Right. You know, so it, I feel like the rough and tumble part was that we had all these great dreams for changing massive like um, systems of inequity, primarily in the material culture in the museum world, massive. And that it was like the good fight. And in, in one of my books, The Knowing Native Arts, I, I end by saying, the good fight is really not worth it, guys. Like the good fight means that they just want us to, um, you know, argue and complain. And that at the end of the day, a lot of these institutions of power are just going to do whatever they want to do anyway. And we've actually helped them by, you know, giving them some PR, you know, um, at the end of the day. So when I think about who my 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 mentors are like how did I get my influences? I definitely have to to say 
my family, they provided me a wonderful education. Um, both of my parents were educators. And, um, you know, while they couldn't make a living as college professors, and they both ended up going into other fields, my dad working for HUD as a professional engineer, and my mom um, working the public school system in Jackson, Mississippi as the only or one of the only white women in an all-black junior high school on the other side of town in Jackson, Mississippi during the civil mm -hmm. rights era. You know, like like they 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 really wanted to see us in higher education and and would collect you know all those diplomas on the walls and those crazy beer mugs from all the universities and you know they were just totally into that so you know I have to give them a lot of credit. Um, my tribal chairwoman Mildred Cleghorn, who has passed on uh, at a, at a really key point, actually called up my dad. I remember. Who knows if this is true, but I remember, you know, the phones that were on the walls and you, you know, the rotary and you pick them up. And somehow I remember being home and, and my dad, like taking this call from our tribal chairwoman and she was sending me out to do a job that was, um, it was working for the NHPRC, the National Historic Preservation and Records Commission. And it was working on all of our um, claims, our legal claims under, um, um, you, you know, the acts that enabled us to go back to the federal government to ask for things that were taken from us, the Claims Commission. Um, and I was sent to Washington, D.C. to work under our tribal lawyer, who was a great man, I.S. Weisbrot. He was known as Lefty because he was a boxer. There's some great stories about these tribal claims lawyers historically. They're just like fantastic tales. Hmm. Um and so I was sent in to, to actually go up in the attic of his wonderful ancient building on DuPont Circle in Washington and to work through all of these um, legal records. Actually, Vine Deloria Jr. wrote on our behalf when we went in front of the Supreme Court to ask for compensation of land and minerals and for imprisonment. And we actually lost the imprisonment claim because the Supreme Court court said that they could only recognize the suffering of individuals and our suffering was of a corporate nature. Hmm. Um, so, so anyway, Mildred, you know, tossed me into that fray. And I think that was really great. Um, I, I, I think it, I don't know if I would call it like mentoring <laughs> as much as I would call it like, you know, you, you go to someone young and say, Hey, you go over there, you know, like we want you to do this thing. And, and I think we need to do more of that, actually. So um, if you talk to any of my grad students, I just enacted this last weekend in Reno, Nevada with a, a new graduate student that I, I threw on a stage with me uh, to do a talk in her first year. My, my colleagues were like, that's rugged. Like, no, I think that's tradish, you know? <laughs> so yes, I've had great people along the way, but I, 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 I have to say that it's been... Um, kind of like a duty that um, I'm, I'm now sort of trying to rethink and the frame of care. And I'll be talking hopefully more about that. I know that you've got a question for me and what advice I have for young people, but um, I, I, I think we shouldn't beat each up ourselves up as much going forward. Oh, wow. How, how has your career developed uh, through college and post-college? I, I, I don't have a great career path. When people ask me this question, I typically will say, um, 
please don't follow anything I've done. <laughs> please. Um, I grew up in the Deep South, and I, I witnessed a, a lot of um, things that were happening in the 1960s, right? And some of it I was unaware of. I was um, unaware of Medgar Evers being murdered in my hometown, you know. Um, some of it I was aware of. I was aware that the synagogue was bombed down the street from my house. I was aware that my friend who was Jewish had a cross burned in his yard, you know. Um, I was aware that I was um, seen as being uh, not belonging, not belonging in that setting. I had great friends. I had a good time. Um, but it was that uh, we weren't from three generations of good Southern stock. You know, we, we were definitely, we looked different. <laughs> you know, we, we, we had different experiences and our parents had different experiences. And so kind of making that work in the deep South was unique. As a woman who was known to be native, and I'm, I present as, as, as a fair native person, there was um, just a lot of kind of um, exoticizing when I started to date, you know, like this, I would go on double dates with my sister and, and the guys would call it powwowing. And, you know, now I realize like there was just a lot of kind of, you know, sexual like pressure given and ideas, you know, about who we were and what our worth was, you know, so, so that was weird. And I think that all led me to kind of act out a lot. And um, so I'll, I'll, I think this is my first go public with this, although anyone from back home in Mississippi will know this, but I was tossed out of high school. <laughs> I, I didn't get a diploma. No, I was, I was wild uh, and I was having a good time and I was acting up, you know, like, like probably was the healthiest thing I could have done was to act up. Um, hmm. And so I was fortunate enough that my sister was ahead of me, had gone to college, and somehow they offered me a deal that was like, if you go to college for a year, we'll send you a high school diploma later. And, and so I went to college for a year, continued to have a great time. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I was doing great things with creative writing. Um, I, I love the arts. I was, I was weaving. I was doing ceramics. You know, I who knows what kind of grades I made in that year. But um, the claims commission that I mentioned earlier, uh, because we were successful in getting a little money for land and water rights at 1886 prices with no interest, of course. Um, when I turned 18 in college, I just grabbed the first boy I found and I went off to live in off the map. It was a corner of the country. It was in North Carolina. And there were no roads in this county. And I was like, that's perfect. I, I was highly influenced by, oh, it was some hippie manual that was like called Country Women. And it told you how to raise sheep. <laughs> it told you how to do chickens, how to build. I was very influenced by that. And so I grabbed a boy and I took my claims commission money and we bought a, a piece of land in the middle of nowhere. And I did a a mountain mama hippie homesteading thing for about a decade out there living with some real off-graph people from the 1960s, right? See, there was the tofu factory, you know, <laughs> we, we had a co-op, you know, we all um, wore hippie clothes, you know, people lived in yurts and tree houses. We had the like weekly potluck with clothing optional, you know, we're all having babies and raising them naturally and, you know. <laughs> It was pretty great. It was very liberating, you know, to be out there. 
Um, and but after a year, of course, you know, I, I got really bored. <laughs> and and so I went to the local nearest school and I found out I could get money from my tribe to do that. Actually, I was at one of our tribal gatherings and our historian, um, Michael Darrow, I got to give him a lot of credit, uh, told me about the Institute of American Indian Arts. And so I ended up going there uh, and starting in a museum studies track. And IAIA has been a part of my life ever since, 30 mm. plus years, tribal college system. So I give the tribal college system really as much do or more than any of the fancy colleges and universities I've been to. Um, and that kind of lit a fire under me, right, for museums, because it was like there's this ton of work that needs to be done. And for us to go from, I've learned this, I've got a friend at NARF, Brett Shelton, and, and he, he, he kind of taught me this, and this is where we're kind of doing more work on healing and care, is that, you know, land theft led to warfare, led to incarceration, led to boarding schools, led to adoption, and then our way back is to get all the things they took away, which is land and language and culture, and that museums and archives are a part of that. So my pushback now with that agenda is museums and archives are actually inherently unsafe places and that we really have to do a lot more work. We can't just go in and grab stuff and say, you know, like, everything's good now. Um, so, yeah, I think my agenda kind of started, my training started with the Institute of American Indian Arts and hanging out at that multi-tribal arts hub in the country. Really vastly influential for me. So important. From... From there, so I'm trying to think here. Uh, what, if, if you don't mind me asking, what was the time frame at IAIA uh, when you started oh, into the, in the museum 80s. studies? Yeah, okay. yeah, in the 80s. Okay. 80s baby. Cause I'm, I'm, <laughs> cause I'm thinking of uh, NEGPRA, you know, when that was enacted, um, uh, was it 89 or 90? Uh, 90. So pre-NAGPRA times, that was a rough ride. I mean, fascinating yeah. stuff going on. I got to the Smithsonian. I actually was able to watch a lot of the congressional hearings that were happening with Secretary Adams, right? Mm -hmm. And the Smithsonian was pulling back and saying, oh, we're going to have our own legislation. you know." And then there are all these traditional elders that were testifying. I actually use that a lot. You can get the congressional testimonies. I use them in a the classroom and have people play act different, like, religious leaders and then the museum people that don't want to give anything back. It was like a, a drama. It could be read as literary. <laughs> so it was pre-NAGPRA that, that I feel like I got my start. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the, the reason I ask is um, when NAGPRA uh, was enacted, um, my, my tribe was the second tribe to uh, take advantage of of that and go out to the Smithsonian and uh, retrieve remains uh, from from our tribe and bring those home. And my dad was a part of that. And I know, I believe it was afterwards, but he was in those conversations at that time. So I'm just oh, that's uh, beautiful. I wonder if I met him because okay, so for the young people, we all had these internships, and again, we're just having a good time. Like we're. <laughs> We're Indians in Washington. And, you know, like we, we had no money. We would find out where there would be like an opening at some embassy and we'd all descend upon it and eat for free. And then you had to like get home before the subway closed because mm. then you're just like, and, and that when was that? 
like midnight or one or something, like you had to get home. But whenever tribal dignitaries came, this is why I wonder if I met your daddy, then we would know they were there. Mm-hmm. And we would want to like hang out with them and ride around in taxis with them. And then they would tell us, and that was like a great learning. Maybe that's where I got my mentorship in the back of a taxi in Washington, D.C., maybe with your dad <laughs> and tribal representatives, you know, and they would tell us what their M.O. was. You know, they're like, OK, this is what's going to happen, kids. Like, you know, you're going to go into the museum. They're going to do this. This is what you're going to do that. And it was infused with spirituality. I mean, they were like, sometimes guys hand over stuff to us and they will say, we don't know, like, why we're doing this. Like, you know, like they really were enacting their traditions within the Smithsonian and not mm-hmm. actually like writing about them, not blogging about them. You know, they were just enacting it and, and to be in the front row and watch how that happened. That was good. Wow. Wow. Uh, this is definitely a conversation. I want to go down sometime with you. Um, this is cause I was a little kid. I was like 14 or something when we went out there and uh, to see all of this sort of play out from the eyes of a 14 year old, of course. Um, it was so interesting and fascinating. Uh, but I'm just learning now of, of a lot of the work and efforts that were going on behind the scenes, you know, all the, the adulting that was going on uh, to make that happen. Um, oh yeah. We got to talk more about it. Yeah. We got to talk yes. more about that. Cause I mean, I, I viscerally remember being in the attic of the Smithsonian um, you know, trying to find stuff. Cause even at that age, you know, I, I, I had my first child young, I was 20 and I wanted her to have a coming of age ceremony and I wanted to see the dresses and I wanted to see the boots. I wanted to see how they were constructed. And it was like traumatic stuff. I mean, I think we overuse trauma these days, but you know, like <laughs> it was dark, it was stinky. Um, you know, there were these boxes that had the skull and crossbones over it. You know, they had a lot of men's you know, things, but the women's things you had to look for. I mean, it was just like a hot mess. And those poor museum Mm. workers, it wasn't as though they could control any of that. And they were probably, Mm. they were there 24 seven. I mean, like they were getting probably chemically contaminated all day, our non-native museum workers. We were just there visiting. I mean, so Mm. that, that whole system, yeah, needs to be unpacked and talked about. There's been scholarship on it. I think there've been some books, but I think we, we forget how, how um, egregious, I would use the word egregious, these, these scenarios were. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about opportunities, uh, both how they've uh, presented themselves to you and um, how that has evolved uh, throughout your career. Yeah, I, I really like to think that we're all in preparation for a moment in which we need to act. And we never know when that moment's going to arrive. But the big trick is knowing, hey, I'm here and this is the moment. <laughs> so um, I, I, I think we're always in preparation. And I think I learned that actually when I was at the Smithsonian with that super cool gang I was just telling you about, you know, that like you're always in preparation and you're going to be called to duty, you know. And so I'm, 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 I try to be alert to that fact. And when people ask me how I construct something or how I willed something or how I made something, I'm just like, no, 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 no. Your, your job is to just be receptive, right? And to say, okay, I was placed in school for a reason. Like I was placed in this situation for a reason. There's got to be 
some sense out of this. So when I'm asked to do something, I try to think, oh, I've been asked to do this and I must be the person to do it because I've been asked. Now, as a woman walking around in a woman's body and, you know, and the era that I came through, I've gotten much more careful and a little more conservative. And I'm talking about like projects. When I've been asked to do a project, my aunt asked me to help with the Horace Pulaf photos. Great honor. I mean, that was a 20 year project. Right. Mm. And I said, yes. <laughs> and that was like taking photographs from under the bed to a traveling exhibit at the Smithsonian and a catalog with Yale University Press. That was a 20 year process. Oh. And it's still ongoing because I think that exhibit's traveling. But she asked me, actually, she was, we were doing some other work and she's like, why are you messing with these photographs? You should be messing with my dad's photographs, you know? And so it's just like, okay, I guess that's, that's my next project. And so, um, you know, I think it's just being attuned to, when there's a place you can step in it and you might get it wrong and, and you might make mistakes. Actually, I think mistakes are very valuable and we should make them all the time. Um, so another project, the Venice Biennale, that's a 20 year project. And that's what I'm working on now to, to write up. Um, you know, that was this series of circumstances. I was part of um, Native American preparatory school. It opened, it closed. It was in Santa Fe, and I worked on that project. It was bringing uh, high school kids at that time to the College of Santa Fe, a very compromised campus just in terms of, like, the facility was falling apart. It's where IAIA was for some time, Institute of American Indian Arts. We had, like, 50 youth. Um, part of that under Bill Bray, hello, Bill Bray, I hope you're still out there, haven't talked with you in forever, um, he brought in an Aboriginal leader, Lindsay Croft, who is a Harkness Fellow at Harvard. And uh, Lindsay brought two Aboriginal youth in, and that was part of our international Indigenous exchange program. This would have been the early 90s. So important, that work. And tragically, Lindsay died in a car accident outside of El Paso right after the program ended. And it brought me into family with his relatives, the Croft family, Joe Croft, his father, and Brenda Croft, his sister. We adopted each other. Um, Brenda came a year later to photograph the crash site. She's a photographer. She's a curator. She's an intellectual. I, I love Brenda. We adopted each other as sisters. And she told me, um, hey, by the way, I've got this gig in Venice, Italy. Had never heard of Venice didn't know anything about its prestige as an exhibit site. Um, it was Brenda who had a gig and she was just like, you should come. And I was like, okay, we would love to support you. So, you know, myself, my husband, my young daughter, who was just a toddler, my sister, her young daughter, you know, like the family <laughs> went to Venice and uh, to witness and to support, you know, the project. And it was there that we were like, hey, this is kind of a cool gig. And we, and we met through instances that you cannot plan. It was we we're trying to get into our, our house and we had a key ancient Venetian, you know, architecture. We broke the key. I think we've been having a good time there, too. We <laughs> broke the key in the lock and we had the baby and we ended up having to go to like the Carabinere, you know, which is you know the police station to try to find out how to get into our apartment. The babies are crawling all over the desk. You know, it's just like a, a, a typical, like, Italian event. Lots of drama. <laughs> and, and so we met a, a, a Venetian man, Giancarlo Dorno, who introduced us to Mario Di Martino. 
and uh, uh, my sweet friend Elisabetta Frasca. Anyway, we we ended up saying let's go back because uh, these Venetians really think we're cool and we've got a lot of good art and we might as well bring it over ourselves and do what Brenda did. And so that started 20 years of bringing Native people to the Venice Biennale. And that that was like I, I couldn't have invented that. I didn't know about prestige when I wrote. To our first year, we actually wrote to Harold Zaman, who I later found out was the curator of the last century. Like the Getty Archive has his archives, all of his archives, the most famous mm-hmm. curator ever. Like we wrote to him and said, we're separate from the nation state of the United States. We're indigenous and we want a pavilion like everyone else. And and this guy who I had no idea who he was, you know, I think we were faxing. It was, we didn't have internet. And, and he was just like, sure. You know, uh, while while what did he say? It was kind of like a subtle dig. It was like, well, all the while all the artists are not of the same caliber or something like that. <laughs> we think it could be interesting. So yes, come. And and so for like two two biennales, we rode free. We didn't pay anything, and we were part of the like one of twelve people globally to be showing art. I mean, it was just because I don't know. We just followed the story that presented itself to us in a trying in a good way. And there were lots of mistakes there too, guys, just lots, but it, it was, it was fun. And yeah. I think it helped maybe because the people who came back from those projects to their home communities had these amazing stories. And I think that was our goal was not that people get famous or have money or any of that stuff. It was just like, we want native people to feel whole and that we belong anywhere we want to belong on a red carpet, across the ocean, back home. We just want to belong. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. It's, <laughs> it's great. I was going to ask you about uh, the exhibitions in Venice. So this is, this is so yeah. wonderful. It was fun. Yeah, I'm still trying to sort it all out in my, in my head. And I just want to do justice to everyone who went over. And, and, you know, we talked a little before we got on. Like even in our home communities, I think there were some questions about what we were up to. So B Medicine, such a dear heart. I met her up in Alberta. I remember she had this like little white, like um, patent leather kind of purse that was in the crook of her arm. And, and, and I'd given some talk and she had like, you know, pointed her finger at me from the back and was like, no, this part's wrong. Come talk to me. You know, <laughs> and she marched me to her classroom and sat me down at a desk and was like, I want you to write down, like, what are you doing? And so like the next morning I had to be there at eight in the classroom with B-Medicine, looking at what I was writing, correcting it, red pen. It was just wonderful. Um, so I had I had the, the wonderful support of B-Medicine at a certain point, but B really did not approve of the international stuff. She was just like, what are you doing over there? Like, I'm back home building a library. And I think a lot of elders, it was really hard. Like, you guys are just going over there and drinking Prosecco and having fun. Like, what about nation building? Like, what are you doing? And But we really did feel like this was our nation building, right? Like, we, we got this global power to say, hey, you guys are different. You're not the United States. You're your own nation. And, and granted, it was sloppy, and we didn't have as much money as anyone else. And we were doing things in, like, you know, donated spaces, and we're making up things as we went. But I think at the end of the day, I think we created a conversation, and sometimes that's all you can do. Hmm. So, uh, what would you say to the 18 and 22 year old that is listening to this conversation? Oh, I've got notes on this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, I think that being broken is our superpower. 
And by being broken, I don't mean like that genocide was a gift. You know, I don't mean that racism is good. I don't mean any of that. But I mean, like, if you're going to be in the rough and tumble world that we are in, being the achievers after the strivers after the survivors, right? You know, you're going to be in that world doing whatever work that has been presented to you. You're, you're going to get beat up a little bit. And I think that being being bruised can actually be really good. You know, it, 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 uh, I, I got a flash of this childhood memory. When I was trying to learn how to ride a bike, um, I didn't know how to use the brakes at all. And I was the youngest. They call me Bitsy. It's my nickname. I was just like, you know, it's just a mess. And I would always fall off and I would get like my knees would be full of gravel and, and dirt. And I would be in the tub screaming, you know, my mother, poor thing, like there's blood in the tub. I'm screaming. And, and I have all these scars on my knees. And so now in my early elderhood, like I'm really proud of those scars, you know, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I learned how to ride a bike. No one, right. I wouldn't let anyone teach me, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so like ride the bike, go ride the bike, scream in the bathtub later, but ride the bike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I learned when my daughters had their ceremony. So both of my girls, thank you to the Mythlo clan and Apache. And thank you to all my relatives and Mescalero. They were wonderful. And we, they helped enable me to have a coming of age for both of my daughters. And I learned during those processes from one of our aunties, one of our, our mothers, that um, she gave this advice to my daughter. And it was, whoever you surround yourself with in your adult life will be your life that that will inform who you are as a person so be very selective about the people you surround yourself with and so i i actually took that advice in myself you know of of there are a lot of folks that are good and we can love them from a distance but your time on earth is precious and just make sure that it's all meaningful for you and so that time part, and this is especially for women, um, it, it applies to guys too, but for women, because I think uh, we're often in the position of, you know, the nurturer, right, keeping things together and, and that labor, people, gender studies would call it, you know, like the domestic, you know, <laughs> all of that labor is big and it takes up a lot of time. So your task, especially young women, but for guys too, is to differentiate what is valuable, right? What is valuable for you? Not, not necessarily what is valuable for someone else. There's going to be tons of people that are going to come in and try to tell you what your time is worth and who that time is obliged to. But that's in your hands. That's not up to them to say. So, um, you know, being a good friend, being a good citizen does not mean endless sacrifice, right? I'm back to that thing of the good fight. Like, you know, being in the good fight is not a value in and of itself. And the value is in honoring yourself um, and saving. You know, we get told we need to save a lot of things, people, situations. In the end, let's start to think about that as a colonial act, right? You know, who are we saving? For whom are we saving? You know, why is it up to us to save? Isn't that Western to think that like one of us can actually accomplish all that? Like who told us that was right? So these are just thoughts I'm just going to share. The last one, um, I've been doing this in my class, so if there's any students that ever listen to this, you're going to find this be very familiar. Um, avoid shoulds and must. A lot of my students are very strident, and I love that. 
but they're, their, their essays are not necessarily what I want them to read about and think about. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, I have an opinion and my opinion is we should and we must. I'm, I'm actually trying to walk people back off of the should and must. And I want us to think more about like, what does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to hold memories? And what does it mean about time? Like where you are right now is not going to be where you're going to be later on, Right. And so always keeping that that factor in, in mind, like being strident is fine. And it's part of our life cycle, of course, to be angry. And, you know, actually the angry Indian thing, we could talk. I'll do a whole lecture on that later on. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think often we're in reactive situations, I think is what I'm trying to say. And so to, uh, young people, be proactive. Really, you know, you craft your own story. Don't let it be anyone else's story. That's so wonderful. I'm I'm taking this in like I'm 18 and 22. Uh, this is so <laughs> super duper. <laughs> I love that. Is there anything you would like to to leave with us before before we end this conversation? I can't believe the time has passed so quick. I, I've been a chatty gal today. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to take a break, but I've been a chatty gal. It, it feels a little like therapy. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> like I've been at the therapist office. Um, okay, so I'm writing this book and I've got this intro and I've been thinking about this. Okay, so this is what I'm up to next is trying to write up Venice. And I tell you, no one wanted me to write this up. I've been trying for decades to get money behind this as an academic. And for some reason, people just don't like it. I don't know. I, I don't know. Do they, do they, um, some people have actually told me I can't do this story because I'm too close to the material as if objectivity exists, you know, or that if I curated it, I can't talk about it because curators can't talk about them. I mean, there've been a lot of like really weird things thrown in my path. Um, but in any case, the book's happening. So, um, I'll just read you this little paragraph, if that's okay. Oh, it's great. The title of the book is Redskin Dreams. And Redskin Dreams because one year that we went to Venice, we had a bank account. And uh, somewhere along the way, it was labeled Pelorosa, uh, which is redskin in Italian. I mean, we didn't invent that title ourselves, but we found out our bank account was called Pelorosa. (laughs) And so rather than be upset or reactive or angry, we're like, okay, we can roll with that. <laughs> so, so um, and it was in the year that there was an exhibit call for dreams and conflicts. And so we decided, let's just embrace and call it like Redskin Dreams. So that was one of our exhibits in Venice. And I decided to use it for the title of the book. So Redskin Dreams is not a celebration, not a parable in which all goes right. Yet this tale is instructive. In the pages to follow, I hope to grapple with the inconsistencies, the mistakes, the triumphs, and the joys of bringing Indigenous art to the epicenter of Western culture, La Biennale di Venezia, during a time of great transitions globally. The adoption of the Euro, the invention of the internet, the development of a private art structure from a public entity, all of these shifts from 1997 to 2017 were prophetic in multiple ways. The ability to not only observe 
but to participate in this fragile and central epicenter of the arts that is La Biennale di Venezia, known as the oldest and most prestigious international arts venue, was certainly unique. Yes, we were dreaming. And yet, by extending the tradition of indigenous peoples mobile in time and space, our group demonstrated that other worlds are possible, even just for a period of time. Our dreams were real, and it all happened. Here's the story. So that's my part of my intro that um, I'm hoping to finish this coming year. And I hope I, again, do justice to all the dozens of amazing people that helped out with that project. It sounds wonderful. Where, where can the listener find uh, your, your books and, the, and your work? Where, where's that available at? Oh, geez. You know, I, I, got an, I, I got a website a long time ago, and, and my wonderful designer who just texted me, and I had to turn my phone over because I was talking to you, John Paul Rangel. Go, John. Um, I got this website a long time ago, and I remember him saying, well, you've got to have one of those things where people can write to you. And I was just like, I don't have time. I don't want people to write to me. <laughs> I know that sounds really haughty and weird, but, you know, I'm a grandma. I want to play in the driveway with the kids sometimes. Um, So I I just, I have a website under my name and it's kind of a one way. It's a a one way channel, but, um, you know, I I have amazing people. I'm I'm, I'm mentoring uh, a wonderful scholar in Norway. I've got my beautiful family I've adopted in Australia. I love the Maoris of New Zealand. You know, Aotearoa is my new Venice. Um, so folks will find me and ask me to do things, and I'm always happy to oblige. And if I can help, I will. Well, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this conversation. Um, this was this was an absolute joy. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Joe. This was fun. Let's do something again. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'll just say yes now. <laughs> okay. Oh, I've got to say, oh, oh, this is the word from my, my, okay, this is from my auntie who's walked on. This is see you again. We don't say goodbye. And, and it's going to be a, I just warn you the pronunciation I'm, I'm learning, but it's Nando Schle. Nando Schle. And my auntie would be like, no, it's wrong. Nando <laughs> Schle. It means I'll see you again. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Dr. Mytho again for her time and sharing her story with us. What an adventure she's been on. And the work that she's doing now is, is so important. I, you know, to, I think, maybe get a little personal here. It's, I can't help but wonder if possibly at some point of her work in Washington that she didn't cross paths with my dad 30 years ago in the work to make NAGPRA a reality that helped so many indigenous communities across the country. And who knows, uh, maybe the 14-year-old version of me uh, crossed paths with her in the Smithsonian back in 1991. Who knows? Uh, But what's exciting is that the hard work that's been going on all these years is still continuing on and knowledge is being passed uh, from people who have been doing this for so long to the new generations. And that's exactly what she's doing out at UCLA. And I applaud her efforts and her career, a truly impressive career. And so I'm so happy and, and grateful that she is a part of, of this program. So uh, Dr. Michael, thank you for this opportunity. I am so grateful for this conversation. Thank you, Joe.
I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canna. That's C-A-N-A, C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, across social media. Uh, There you can find our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. So if you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, please find us on Facebook, message me. I'd really like to hear from you. Well, that's it. You take care, and we will see you next time. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.